Good morning, everybody. You're listening to the Saturday Morning Sports Emporium actually being recorded on a Saturday morning. It is the 7th of November in this glorious year of 2020. My name's Justin Lee. I am joined by Adam Swenson and Brandon Lee. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Justin. Good morning to you. Excellent. And uh, plenty, plenty of things to talk about right now. Um, Obviously, we actually have college football, so that's kind of different. Um, And we've got a lot of off-seasons going on, and well, I guess you could say the Lions are in-season, but I would say they're always off-season, but whatever. We'll talk about them a little bit as well, the Masters, and uh, whatever else pops into our brains, not politics here on the Saturday Morning Sports Emporium. So, as I joke very tiredly all the time, um, you know, I feel like we're contractually obligated to talk about the Lions, so I guess we'll... uh, We'll continue that contractual obligation to talk about the Lions, and I don't even know where to start. Um, would you like to talk about Stafford? Uh, I, I guess that's as good a place as any. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Um, you know, we we alluded to this a little bit on the last show that we were. Um, if we kind of looked at Max Stafford and some of his play, there was some inconsistency, right? Uh, and, um, you know, the thing was, that was after the New Orleans game. They had their bye week. They came out and, you know, they uh, um, <clears throat> the team, especially the defense, I thought looked pretty good against Jacksonville. And we can talk about the level of play from Jacksonville all day long, but the point being is that there, there were some positive things that came out of that game. You go into the Atlanta game, Quite honestly, I thought the Lions played a lot better than the Falcons in that game, and they probably there should have been a larger margin. It should have never come down to to that point. But then you go up against, in, in the, but even in that game, you know Stafford had his moments where he just I don't know, just from an execution standpoint, whether it be fundamentals, just general overall absorbing of what was going on, just off from what even what we saw last season and then we get into the Indianapolis game where uh, you know the offensive line that had played pretty well the last two games just completely lost it against you know a pretty good defensive line of Indianapolis but not to the point that they you know were able to execute on on that particular day. Stafford definitely looked befuddled out there and part of it of course was that Kenny Galladay was not there and I think Kenny Galladay has definitely been uh you know is is um been is unbelievable as it has looked on the field uh, um to all observers uh and then of course then the defense allowing Phil Rivers to completely shred them and then as we go forward then we are thinking about, well, wow, we've got a lot of injuries going forward, whether it be Trey Flowers, Taylor Decker, um, you know, something like Stafford might be out for a game, and then Kenny Galladay will be out. So, But in the end, I'm going to steal the, the Brandon line. It really does come down to coaching, and I think the coaching definitely has, you know, it, it, it basically it always got the watermark of their opponent so or a little below. So, Yeah, I think that's a really fair a fair and good way to put it. I think that sums it up well. I mean, they just, you know, 
I agree with your assessment on the Atlanta game. The one thing I noticed in the Atlanta game that carried through into the Colts game, and the reason I think it's a big issue is the leading, their leading rusher in the Atlanta game had 29 yards. Their leading rusher in the Indianapolis game had 11. You don't win in the NFL with that. You just don't. And let me ask this. How long have we been talking about this with the Lions? With Barry Sanders' luck? I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, no, you're absolutely correct. And, and and I think part of it, to be honest with you, and, and, you know, I the last thing I said on the last show was this team's success is going to depend upon figuring out how they're going to get DeAndre Swift involved. Right. Now, they got him involved in that Jacksonville game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and then but then there's this – continual dedication to Adrian Peterson, which I, I don't understand. And I, I don't want to get into the decision of signing Adrian Peterson because I think it actually helped both DeAndre Swift and uh, um, Kerryon Johnson. There's no offense about that. But the point being is that at some point, you draft with the guy in the second round. If you draft someone in the second round, there's an expectation that they're going to be a active participant on the field and they're going to be uh, uh, an impactful player on the field, uh, and and you know, and from that standpoint, I think it, you know it might be the point of no return, and and you just need to get DeAndre Swift involved. And oh, by the way, you got to forget the game one against Chicago where he dropped the ball against uh, you know on, on the last play game play of the game. If in fact it is any part of your decision making as to why you're not involving him more. Yeah, no, I mean, a second-round running back has got to be a 15 to 25-touch guy every single game. Um, yes. Because the running backs immediately depreciate once you draft them. You've got to maximize the touch even in year one, and that's become the norm. I mean, truly, um, rookie running backs are now among the most valuable commodities there are. Um, so, you know, I think the two best games they played, Arizona and Jacksonville, clearly in Jacksonville they controlled – line of scrimmage, they ran the ball really well. But even against Arizona, like, the numbers weren't gaudy, but Peterson put up, like, 75, 80 yards. And they were able to use him, give him the ball about 20 times, run the clock, keep Kyler Murray off the field. And so, you know, if you want to be a Bill Belichick team, you don't have to have a running back that's going to have gaudy numbers. And seldomly his running backs do, but they do run the ball 20 times a game, grind it out, run clock down, be effective, keep the ball out of – quarterback's hands if they're going to make mistakes. And so there's a blueprint for how this team can be successful, but they either don't seem to know that, can't figure it out, can't execute it, can't it. And so they're just uh, they're just not very good. In tying those two points together is with, with Belichick and the idea of a second-round running back needing to actually touch the ball, that is the point of the Belichick running game, right. is you typically have two or three very capable guys in the backfield you know one might be your third down guy one might be your red zone guy but you're rotating those guys in and out so yeah none of them are having these huge numbers most of the time but you're still concentrating on the ground game and the ground game can be the most effective part of an offense by keeping the other team's offense off the field and the Lions haven't had that consistently pretty much since Barry Sanders. There's a couple exceptions in there, but I mean, basically 20 years at least. And and I think part of it is not only the running backs that they've had, but I think for whatever reason, and this was the case with Jim Caldwell, and I think it's slowly getting back. I mean, you can see improvements in terms of the uh, uh, of the offensive line, not from just a general overall capability, but the understanding of what they need to do 
when they do run the ball. And 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 there has been those instances where they've been able to effectively run. And I think a large part of it, again, though, is that, you know, even and, – and, and a large part of that has to do with the uh, uh, play calling. I mean, I, I – you know, it's like the, 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 the play of Adrian Peterson on that fourth and goal, I believe it was the Atlanta game. And it was like everyone in the whole world knew they were going to hand <laughs> it off to Adrian Peterson on that play. And you cannot – you cannot be so obvious, and, and there's no doubt in this particular team, the, the, the obviousness of some of their plate calling is just painfully brutal. So, and, 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 and saying all that, what I'm finding going to be find very interesting is you're going up against a Minnesota team that, yeah, they played really good, uh, good against Green Bay, but I, I don't – in regard to what they did on Thursday, I, they barely faced an NFL team on Thursday. So um, against the 49ers uh, of the taping of the show. Um, and then they've got, I think, uh, Carolina, and then they've got uh, the Redskins afterwards. And uh, it, it has nothing to do with I think that the Lions team is – good i just think they're on par with a very parody ridden nfl so i i you know to sit there and write them off at this point uh, i'm very careful and again a little a little of it has to do with the lions more has to do with just the basic level of play and how we refer to it in terms of of water level and where you're at, at that i mean i guess it depends on what you mean by write them off you know They've played, in my estimation, two good teams and have lost by three touchdowns to two good teams. And if they somehow miraculously got the eight and eight or nine and seven, they would go to the playoffs and lose by three touchdowns to a playoff team. And so if you want to say that their season has viability from a record standpoint to be advanced, it might, but it has absolutely no viability in any other way. And so that's where I write them off. Like they get into the playoffs against any playoff caliber team in the NFC with the exception of maybe whatever swamp thing comes out of the NFC East. And they lose by three or four touchdowns. I mean, they're not good at all. And, and, and the other thing I would say, too. Like, to, what's their strength? Like, I, like, they don't even have a strength. The other thing I would say, too, is that, I mean, we, we've seen that they, they you know, they, they choke on tiny little pebbles. They've lost, you know, they lost, what, eight straight games where they had a two-touchdown lead. Um, and going into the fourth quarter, was it, was it, was it that specific or was it just having the two touchdown lead? I don't remember. There's a lot of them out there, Justin. Yeah. So, and, and, and I mean, but, but, to remember, remember. it really is. It, but, but again, this is a team that doesn't kill people. This isn't a team that, again, a Belichick team, you make sure you bleed out. The lions give you a band aid and a lollipop and say, mm-hmm. please, another, yeah, you know, yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think to Adam's point, I mean, they could very well come out of this stretch that Adam described at six and five. It's not out of the realm of possibility. There are some really dreadful teams coming up. You know, Stafford's health, Galladay's health will, will be determining factors there. But then I look at where they end the season, at Bears, Packers, at Titans, <laughs> Bucks, and Vikings. I mean, they could lose out that stretch too. Oh, oh yeah, no, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt they could lose out, you know, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. And I've looked at that before where I'm like, well, who, you know, and, but the point being, being as unhealthy as they are now might be manageable. It might yeah. be manageable. And again, I mean, if you head down the stretch and you're, 
I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, Giovanni Tavai trying to tackle Derrick Henry. Okay, let, let's just get that out there immediately. Yikes. Yeah, in December, right. Um, you know, and then in the meantime, but again, I mean, if Tom Brady is not healthy or he goes through his general late season decline, eh, maybe you can win that game. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and, and again, the, the Bears, I mean, yeah, the Bears seem to have the Lions number, but, God, they're dreadful too. And then the Packers, I don't know. It depends on what Packers team that you fit. And I guess going back to your point, if they're nine and seven and, and there's no, you know, no tangible, okay, they do this really, really, really good type of thing. And, 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 and they get to that point. But, but Brandon, the problem is, is that I watch every NFL team that's not the Chiefs and all of them. I mean, we just talked about the Titans. They run the ball really well, but it's like their defense, but the rest of their team, outside of Derrick Henry, is just lackadaisical in, 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 in many ways. That's, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to go through the teams that, like you say, if you get into the playoffs, you're going to lose by three touchdowns. Well, in the NFC, I'm trying to figure out, well, who is that? I mean, literally, the Lions, if they were the NFC East, would be the best team. Arguably, yeah. Right, right. And, and now if you go up against a, a really, really healthy, uh, rested uh, Buccaneers team, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that. But again, that's the same team I sat there and I watched on Monday night, and I don't even know if they knew they were supposed to play that game against the Giants. <laughs> Part of it is, you know, there's, there's, even though there's parity overall, there's drastic quality differences in the divisions, right? Right. East and the North are very weak. The West is incredibly strong. You know, if they were in the West, they might only have a win or two right now. I think Seattle blows them out. I think Arizona, if they play them again, significantly, I think the Rams handle the Lions pretty easily. I think the Saints can be, I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers can. I think Uh, they can and did and will again. I mean, I, I, I'll just tell you, the Rams are a rough watch, by the way, too. The I mean, I, I didn't say I wanted to watch them. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I Again, that's what I'm saying. I, I just, you know, Jared Goff looked like he was another guy. That looked, I mean, I, if you would ask him in the game against Miami where he was at, I think he was still in L.A. So I, mm-hmm. I, whew, I, I but they, But the difference being they, they found a way to have a, to have a five and three record eight games in. And arguably the hardest division in football. Uh, correct. I, I, I think that's arguably schedule in the league, and they're three and four, and right. Ar- could have lost to Atlanta. Right. You throw that game away, even though they played better through the whole the whole of the game. Stafford throw that game away. Right. No. 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 And I think. And and I'll let me. And again, I don't want to get too far down the road, but 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 there's two things I I relatively know at this point is that I, and we talked about this at the beginning of the season and it got talked about quite a bit is that it's very apparent to me uh, unless something dramatically changes with Max Stafford down the line here is that this is an organization that is going to be very much forced, forced to really think deeply about Max Stafford and what direction that they're, going to go with him at the end of the season and the other thing is is that i'm going to tell you straight up there's no way no way in this galaxy or any other galaxy that this team is going to sign kenny galladay to any sort of contract that talks about 17 18 19 million dollars a year 
that's not happening. The only way that that guy is on this team next year is that they franchise him. That's it. They might, yeah. Yep. No, I think I think you're spot on in both of those. You know, I I don't have any concluding comments, Justin, on the Lions, other than they're not a good team. They're not well coached. No, okay. and, and and by the way. If that's the case, if, if the team perceives that to be the case, then that's where people like Matt Patricia and Bobby Quinn are here beyond the 2020 campaign. Because at that point, they're making major changes. So I don't know. So we, Remains to be seen. Stanford will find out about Sunday morning. They cannot activate him prior to then due to the COVID protocol. And we'll see what the Lions do on Sunday. As always, keep your expectations low. Um, continuing on in the football world, um, you know, college football is up and running a couple weeks in now. Michigan, Michigan State had their rivalry game last weekend. Um, and um, so Michigan was rated number 13. Um, now 23rd Michigan state not ranked this seemed to be a game that was pretty obvious which way it was going to go and yet it didn't go that way I mean home game for Michigan granted nothing like again we're in the hellscape of 2020 so there were 600 people in the stadium or something ridiculous like that instead of 106,000 but in any case what was really interesting to me is that a lot of times when you see upsets, certainly college football, certainly in the pros as well, a lot of the times it's because the the favored team makes mistakes. Uh, there's a pick six. There's a couple fumbles. Somebody muffs a, a kickoff or they give up a big kickoff return. Michigan State just outplayed Michigan. Um, I mean, there were no turnovers in the game. They pretty much kept up with them offensively. The numbers are pretty, pretty even. So what, what exactly happened there? Why is everybody saying Michigan is this much better team, and yet State was able to just blow for blow on the road, keep right up with them? Couple part answer. Uh, I think one, um, Jim Harbaugh continues to choke on applesauce. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Choke on applesauce. That's what I was looking for earlier. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's the that's the big picture is he can't figure out how to beat the rivals, and in college football that does matter. Um, and two is Don Brown has been fully exposed in every way the defensive coordinator can be exposed. By almost any kind of offense on any kind of team from any kind of conference is exposed. Huge flaws in the way that he calls games. And what what was the problem in that game against Michigan State? I could have caught a thirty yard pass in that game. That's how bad the coverage was. Michigan State receivers were routinely beating um, Ray and the other corners by 10 to 15 yards. And usually Lombardi, because he's not a good quarterback, was underthrowing them, and they would come back and grab it and then run. Couldn't cover any of the Michigan State wide receivers. And their, their receiving core is not that good. Ricky White is not – he's a decent wide receiver. He's not an all-Big Ten wide receiver. He had eight catches for 200 yards. Don Brown, Dr. Blitz. They never got pressure either. It's just embar- the defensive effort was embarrassing. 
I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what led to my impression. And, and again, it, it went through a little bit of a roller coaster in terms of my uh, impression going into the game. I sat, I didn't get to watch the Rutgers Michigan State game. And it was very clear that Michigan State got outplayed on every yeah. level on in, in, in that game, right? Uh, when you look at the Michigan game uh, against Minnesota, to me, I my biggest impression was, yeah, their defense isn't good, but it didn't matter because their offense looked like they were faster than I've seen them in several years. Uh, so speed was a factor. And it looked like Joe Milton was the quarterback that everybody has been looking for in the Michigan program for quite some time. Whether it be natural ability, whether it be just fluidness, whether it be the, the ability to throw the ball uh, just with a flick and be able to throw a 50 yards downfield, he looked like he was the real deal next. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to plant this and let you finish, but he is. But keep going. Okay, so then you go into Friday night when Minnesota goes up against Maryland, and all of a sudden, you know, Minnesota doesn't know if it's supposed to be, you know, where it's supposed to be uh, headed in terms of defense. I mean, they were absolutely abominable. So that kind of plants to see that uh, maybe the Michigan offense isn't as good as we think. And then you head into it, and until quite honestly, watching the game, I, I think that from coaches, administration, right down to players, after that Minnesota game, they just said, you know what, we're going to go in and we're going to show up, and that means that we win the game. And I think that's exactly what, what took place from a, a more of a macro mentality, if you will, of, of that team. And I think that, you know, Mel Tucker and Michigan State program was absolutely embarrassed by what took place at that, at that Rutgers game. And they were out, not just for this Michigan State game, but, and it appears that maybe Mel Tucker has one thing on his side, and that is the, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to motivate like a Mark Antonio uh, to make sure that his team, even though uh, Spock and his team are, are not good. I mean, I, I'm, you know, that defense, I, I think, put in every bit of effort that it could in that game against Michigan. And the point being is it, it was a making of a, a not-so-good day for Michigan and a, a, and a pretty good, obviously a really good game for a Michigan State team that was, again, utterly embarrassed by Rutgers. Yeah. You know, that's probably fairer than what I said, but, you know, I mean, it's just – over how bad the Michigan defense was. Um, no, and, and I mean to 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 that point, they're not a good defense. That that didn't change. We we knew that they were not good even watching that Minnesota game. But the point is, is that you thought it would be the offense would be good enough that they would be able to attack that Michigan State defense without much, and it just seemed to be a very lazy say effort from what I could tell. So yeah, you know what what I'll say about Milton. I actually do think he is every bit as good as they, as they hyped him up to be. I think Minnesota's defense was bad, but he still put up close to 700 yards in his first two college football starts against Big Ten competition. And conference-level competition, even in the Big Ten, that's respectable. He hasn't turned the ball over. He's made no glaring mistakes. He's made a couple of really bad throws that could have hurt him, but they, haven't, they, they, they weren't turnovers. I actually think he is very good. And I think Josh Mattis is very good. I just, you know – they still they, they can't seem to commit to the run, and then they just refuse to gamble down the field against Michigan State. And that was the difference: is Michigan would pin Michigan State back. They'd have a third and five, third and six, and Michigan State would throw a forty-yard completion over and over and over again. Michigan would get pinned back, third and nine. They were they probably had third and long ten to twelve times in that game, and it was a four-yard slant route. 
every time. It's like open it up. You've got you've got athletes that are just as good as Michigan State's athletes. Let them run. Ronnie Ball only had four catches. Like that's unacceptable. He's your best wide receiver. So it's just 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 the play calling not good. Harbaugh, he's gonna leave. You know, he's gonna go find an NFL coaching job. And and that was the next question I had about this is that I figured uh, um, that the deck where we're at 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 this point is that they are going to, you know, that they're, they're going to leave or Harbaugh's going to leave. And and I think, and and I I think that that's what everyone wants at this point, because it seems like the administration doesn't want him there, or at least that's a little bit of the impression I get. The fan base is done. They're frustrated. The media thinks that that could just basically be going to be the end conclusion here. And, you know, you, you almost wonder if the, you know, and, you know, I thought maybe there was a little bit of a revival of excitement there after that Minnesota game, but it seems like even just from a player standpoint, they've almost, given into that being the end conclusion. So you know, my, my last word on it is I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to take a play out of uh Ohio State's playbook and put Madison. Gaddis, excuse me. Why not? Josh Gaddis. Okay. Yeah, Josh Gaddis, yeah. Why not? You don't want Don Brown, you know what you're saying? I want to be clear. <laughs> you know, I'll take him to the Amtrak station. <laughs> let him go back to Boston University and let him blitz, you know. Whatever garbage conference they're in. <laughs> so, with that said, um, we'll we'll stay in the world very very briefly of college athletics in Michigan, just to simply say that the Detroit Tigers uh, made a move yesterday, uh, signing the pitching coach of the Wolverines, um, Chris Fetter. And one of the many changes that are coming this offseason for the Tigers, the biggest one thus far, of course, being the hiring of A.J. Hinch uh, as the new manager. And um, he's starting to put together his his team. Uh, he's going to hold over Ramon Santiago and Josh Paul on the coaching staff um, and then just start putting the pieces together. But But obviously the big notable thing here is Hinch. He's off of his one-year suspension and he is right back there. Cora incidentally did end up back in Boston uh, unsurprisingly. Um, So curious as to your guys' takes on that, on Hinch really. The only people in America that are happy for all the election coverage over the last four years so they can sneak that one in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 yeah, I guess my question, there was a lot of talk that we had on this show, and I think it's important to address. I, I, to me, you know, the Houston Astros, they did a lot of things that obviously to the point where there was refer- some repercussions. I think you guys argued there should have been more. And my question is to both of you, where are you at in terms of the – Tigers making the choice of bringing on Hinch, and did you feel in the press conference that he addressed it the best way he could in terms of answering the question about what took place and what he learned and so on and so forth? You did a nice job setting that up, Adam, because uh, 
what I'm going to talk about is how there should have been more punishment for the uh, to the Astros, um, and that that is going to be part of this this overall conversation. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, I think the AJ Hinch's hiring is a good hiring. I think it's a, a a very fine hiring. I don't think there's anything wrong with it whatsoever. Um, he served his suspension, and he has been. You know, I, I think he's taken a really solid attitude towards all of this. Um, it's not like he's denied being involved. We know from the investigation that he was not thrilled about it. We know he was ordered by his bosses to not intervene. He still intervened at some points and not at others. He still carries culpability in that. He says that he does. I think he said the right things in general. I'm not overly concerned about it. But the other part that I will say, because the whole situation absolutely and utterly disgusts me, uh, and I think I was pretty clear about that when we talked about that, right. um, but, but, but then the response by Major League Baseball was so terrible. I have a hard time really blaming the Tigers also for going out and getting a guy who, who is tainted. I mean, there's no question. He was part of the scandal. Uh, and and it is what it is, and his name is forever going to be associated with that. But 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 the key here is the people who were really actually involved in doing this, the guys like Cora and and Beltron and um, you know some of the other front office people, and of course the players themselves on the field, um, who were all involved in this. Not, not all, I shouldn't say that, many of whom were involved in it and many of whom, if not the rest of whom, knew about it. Um, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. There was absolutely nothing. This was a sophisticated scheme to intentionally controvert the rules. They were using modern technology, TVs, you know, signals. Uh, you know, like Brandon and I were talking about this the other day, you know, like – the, the bullpen catchers were getting relayed signals so they could hang one or two arms over the wall so that people could see what the pitch was going to be. I mean, that's not trying to steal some signs or trying to get a competitive advantage. That's just cheating and inexcusable. But Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred, who's, who's really, really trying to become a, the Gary Bettman of Major League Baseball, he he just completely and utterly dropped the ball on this. And granted, it's not all his fault, but Major League Baseball dropped the ball. And at this point, it is what it is. And the Tigers would be foolish to not go out and scoop up a guy like A.J. Hinch. Now, if they had gotten Cora, I probably would have felt a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, the whole situation ended up being a farce. And the Tigers made a good move, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah good radio. Uh, I don't have much to disagree with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to add a couple, just maybe a couple of things more on the hinge side, um, just in terms of why I think they had to do it. Is this caliber? Uh, I mean, I think the, the players that participated should have been heavily punished. Heavily punished. And I think that's where both Amen. I were last, you know, last year when we talked about it. He should have paid a significant price for what they did. And, you know, he should have too. Maybe he should have paid more. And if they would have suspended him and Cora longer, I wouldn't have complained. 
And if he wouldn't have been available this year, I would have been like, okay, good. Great. Um, but in my opinion, he's a, was a, the top, one of the top three managers in baseball. Uh, three division titles, 300 win seasons. Aside from a couple of crappy years in Arizona where he did not have anything to work with, he's had a, he had a dominant record with Houston. And not only did he have a dominant record, he developed those players the way the Tigers will need to develop in order to make a run at being, you know, a highly competitive team in the AL. So they couldn't have made a better decision with what was available, in my opinion. Um, there was no better manager available. Um, and I'm happy. And, you know, we can pick up another three to four wins because we figure out how to steal signs. And that's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, the good news about all this is that, you know, I, I, and I, it just is it mind-boggling to me is, is that you go out, the Tigers are not where the White Sox are. You go out and, and Hinch would have fared a little better going to the White Sox at least immediate, you know. Oh, but they already got their but, they, And then they go out and get a guy. Signed him out of the American house. He's ready. <laughs> I mean, they went out and got a guy who is their manager when I was not much older than my nephew, for God's sake. I mean, it just. <laughs> Every day after four o'clock supper, Tony gets up and he's ready to go. They got the little bus outside of the American house. They drive him to, the, to Cellular Park and he's going to be ready to go. And, and, and he gets out with his attendees on both sides to make sure he doesn't waddle too much. Right, so. no, don't have to worry about sign stealing, you know. He's, no, well, I mean, he needs a magnifying glass. So, oh my gosh! I just I'm like, wow, wow. That's the White Sox, though, and that's their beauty. That and again, the, I mean, they could have hired Ike Gene to be their manager. That's so that's good. They kept him around. I mean, he did win a World Series, to be and fair. And Robin and Robin Ventura. Well, that's true too. He did not win a World Series. He no. did make a lot of pitching changes, though. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he made the World Series getting punched in the face. Uh, let me he and. Did. and <laughs> uh, in, in, in terms of AJ Hinch, you know, the thing, I didn't get to watch the press conference until uh, last evening, and I watched the replay of it. And uh, I have to tell you, honestly, um, from a Detroit uh, coaching standpoint, I can't think of a uh, um, new coach, general manager being brought on in the last several years that I sat there and I looked at the press conference and, I, and my overall of general feeling was is that wow they they really did hire the right person for this team that did and I have confidence that this is going to be a winning organization sooner rather than later and I I can't remember the last time I I, I did that uh, and, and you might come back and go well Steve Eicherman and to be honest with you Steve Eicherman did not Steve Eicherman was Steve Eicherman in his press conference where what he projected was Steve Eicherman and not necessarily in a large part of it had to do with familiarity above anything else with AJ Hinge you could tell he was here he, he has taken responsibility as much as he can at this point for what he did uh, when he talked about his family uh, and, and when he talked about, you know, um, um, being very involved with his uh, daughters as they winded down, uh, you know, their uh, high school, his oldest in high school and the other one, uh, you know, beginning high school. And when he talked about what he wanted in terms of what to do in this target organization, you really walked away with the impression that 
he was going to do it. That that, that there was nothing going to stop him. And uh, but and, and I think lastly though was his excitement about being in the organization. And I thought that that was authentic. And I think. Um, mm-hmm. He, he's very, very good friends with Scott uh, uh, Bream, uh, who's the uh, um, assistant general manager here. I guess they're being always lifelong friends. So I think that that went a long way in terms of him making that decision to come here uh, to, to, to the Tigers. But, uh, guys, the other thing that I guess I'm really impressed by is that here is something where A.J. Hinge might have come and said, hey, I really do want to be the, the, the manager of the Tigers. And one of my big impressions of this organization up until the day that they announced that they were going to hire him is the fact that I would have thought the owner, Chris Illich, would have been a little bit um, – uh, um, not necessarily committed to making that sort of choice because basically what it's saying, and to me what the, this actual hire is telling me is that Chris Illich and the Tigers organization is committed to putting a winning team out on the field and not wanting to play with smoke and mirrors anymore. And, and I'm, maybe I'm, maybe that's a little accusatory to say that they've been using smoke and mirrors the last couple of years. I, I think that might be a little harsh, but, but the point being is that it appears that they've, they've made a choice to say, we are going to bring a winner back to the Detroit Tigers organization. You know, and, and that, that's something that has puzzled me a bit is that a lot of people and, and certainly th- this extends national media, et cetera, have taken the attitude that Christopher Illich was not going to be or not likely to be a spender, not likely to be somebody who was going to be pro franchise. You know, he was just going to look at it as a business. And, you know, of course, he doesn't want it to do badly, but he wasn't going to go out and do anything extraordinary either. And that really confused me because I've heard that over and over again that, yeah, Tigers, they're really not going to, you know, go out and make the big free agent splashes and what have you. And I, I haven't seen anything to indicate that to this point. I know people get frustrated with the duration of the rebuild, but it's pretty much gone along like most of them do. Not, not the best ever, no question. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the worst ever either. So right. I, I, I don't, you know, and particularly last off season when they went out and they signed some really reasonable contracts that were really good, you know, Scope and Romine and Crone, they spent a little bit of money to put a legitimate product on the field, which is desperately necessary. They need to do that again. They're not going to be uh, overly competitive this season. They still need to go out and get some veterans who can, let the younger guys mature a little bit more. Uh, again, assuming that we have some semblance of normalcy in 2021, get let them get some more time in the minors. Mize needs to pitch in the minors some more. Scooble needs to pitch in the minors some more. Paredes needs to play in the minors some more. I mean, th- these things are, are unquestionably true. I, I, you know, I guess I'm just I'm glad that he made this hire, but I've never had any reason to doubt now is he going to go out and say i want a world series championship right now so go get prince fielder no he's probably not but that's probably good um you know so that's kind of the way i look at it yeah i mean i think going back to one of Adam's points i think we got lost a little bit what you were saying it's not just the quality of the person they bring in it's what they're matching what they bring in for the time oh true true the team is at 
And so Iserman, to me, was one of the best GMs in hockey. And it was great that they brought him in, but there wasn't anything beyond his affinity towards this place that made it good or better than someone, a comparable version of him. To me, Hinch can be most closely compared to Scotty Bowman. If you think about what a team needed for the time that they brought them in, Hinch mm-hmm. had exactly the skill set the Tigers needed. Just like Bowman had exactly what the Red Wings needed, being able to kind of move the final pieces around, um, mm-hmm. get a team over the finish as the, the track record, maybe perhaps the best track record in recent years of building a powerhouse team of young talent. And right. so that's where I really think it was a home run for them, was that his, his skill set is so suited for where the Tigers are at. Uh, and, and you're absolutely correct. And I mean, as I'm going through my head, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to go back because I thought a, a really good hire at the time was, was Stan Van Gundy when, when the Pistons brought him in. And of course, that, that ended up. And I'd have to go back to the press conference if it's even out there to make sure to kind of, unfortunately, with bias, I'd have to watch it, of course. But the point being is that to kind of think about what, what was has been out there from a, a you know an organizational standpoint. I mean, I and and I could go on and on, but but, but that was one of the examples. Um, and, and I think um, in, in in terms of this hire, I, to answer uh, Justin's uh, statement or reply to that, I think a large part of that impression has been the continuing. Uh, maintaining of Alavila's employment with the Tigers, which I think people have questioned both locally and nationally in terms of whether or not he's the right person for the rebuild. And certainly we've done it on this show. Uh, and, and certainly Brandon has been the, the most vocal person and, and rightfully so in terms of Alavila. And that is how we've you know come across with the potential uh, impression of of Chris, Christopher Illich maybe not being as committed to baseball, but to your point, Justin, I think that is that to you know uh, have the uh, Mike Illich approach of fantasy baseball of just dropping everything and and just giving everything to to different players is no, not probably the best strategy. And I think and even though at the time that they did it, uh, or, or you know the different going whether it be Juan Gonzalez or you know Pudge Rodriguez, it, it mm-hmm. probably was the right thing to make sure that that impression of Detroit and their commitment was definitely on board. So yeah, um, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, you know, not one to get into today, but that's actually a really interesting debate in my mind because, you know, I don't know about the Giants, but they demolished the Cardinals and they should have won a World Series. And to me, then it is worth it. Selling the farm is worth winning the World Series. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, eight years, 10 years of really prosperous team and great success. You know, and so it was worth it to me. They just choked on applesauce twice in the World Series, you know, and so it's, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it'll be interesting to see when they reach those pivot points, hopefully sooner rather than later, what they do. Yeah, no question about that. And, it, you know, uh, just to kind of to close out on Hinch and being the right person, you look at the young talent he had in the Astros and Correa, Brickman, and, you know, Springer, and hopefully the Tigers are going to have – Maybe it won't be quite those three, but uh, they'll have some really fine talent that Hinch can bring along and get us to the next level because that would be very, very nice. So, by the way, speaking of Tony Larusa, uh, the fact check department has been working uh, very, di- very diligently uh, during our conversation. Did you know? And, and I, I hadn't 
again, Brandon, and I talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, but uh, it's been 10 years. I, I couldn't remember how many years it had been since he had managed, uh, but 10 years. He went out as a World Series champ. I had forgotten that too. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that that's a little bit shocking. The last time he was the manager of the White Sox, because he was, of course, manager of the White Sox, I believe... Um, I believe the Gene Lamont. Year, the year I was born was the last was the manager of the White Sox. He, he was actually fired from the White Sox before you were born um, and then went on to manage the athletics later that season. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty good. He's 76 years old. And look, hey, I, I, no, no hating on 76-year-olds or anything like that, but just a, a – flabbergasting fight, uh, hiring. And, and why would he want to do this? That's, that's the part that I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, hey, to each their own. But uh, I, I wonder if anyone will you know, at some point he'll refer to one of his players as Greg Kittle or, or uh, uh, you know, or, or, or Luzinski by uh, or Ron Kittle or Ron Luzinski. Kittle, Greg Luzinski. Yeah, Harold Baines is he around? Um, and and he even had a player from that team pass away just recently, Tom Seaver, the Heat coach. Oh, that's right, Carlton <laughs> Fisk. Um, and it wasn't like Tom Seaver died really young, by the way. I mean, he died, you know. <laughs> Right. I think Tom Heber was probably older than LaRusso when he managed them, but uh, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's yeah, remarkable. You know, he had, even before he retired, he was starting to have some issues. Um, mm-hmm. He he had, a, I think, a DUI or maybe a DWI at some point. He was battling shingles one year for the end of his career. He's gotten into spats on Twitter and just like weird just like old man, like just kind of lost it a little. And so it's just like, in a way, you know, it's uh, to meet loaf and potatoes, man, with the American. <laughs> and it, by the way, uh, he's same age as Seaver. Um, and okay. Steve, Steve Carlton was on that 86 team. Also, also the oh, same wow. age. Oh, wow. uh, interestingly enough, um, Bobby Bonilla too was on that team. Um, and Ozzie Guillen. So good times. Anyway, um, moving on from the Tigers and, and heading into more off-season type fun, just very quickly on the Detroit Red Wings, we talked about them and Iserman, who got some vindication in the uh, Lightning won Stanley Cup. Um, and uh, really the only real big move, well, there's been two two fairly big ones, uh, the Abdelkader, um, them um, releasing applicator and so that means that his contract gets spread out over the next five seasons so we'll be talking about him you know in what joe smith territory uh bobby Bonilla territory to bring that one back up um so but but then the other thing is of course the signing of anthony mantha restricted free agent um got a very nice contract and you know mantha played over particularly over these last two seasons uh, played pretty well. So always good to keep the good young talent around for another four years. No, I think Mantha is one of those guys that uh, um, embodies what Eiserman wants this team to be, which is, a, a, a you know, some sort of level of grit 
really good natural, you know, skating ability along with just, a, you know, very good hockey um, acumen and, and general overall ability. And I think when you're thinking about a guy like Mantha, that is definitely uh, part of that Iserman blueprint uh, where, where you've got all those intangibles and the more more players you have with those intangibles, the better you're going to be. And I think that's, uh, uh, and, and, and again, I think, you know, with this particular roster, you look at an applicator, he was very good for the time that he, you know, especially when they initially brought him on, uh, uh, you know, and then the decision to kind of give uh, that, that contract extension, uh, Justin, I think I remember you and I, you know, going ahead and, and talking about that. And that was a, a tough one to digest at the time. And um, yeah. again, getting those, Getting all the contracts to be manageable, getting out, you know, getting Mantha that contract, which I think is, from my understanding, fairly reasonable. And I think it's just, it, it, it's a nice move by Iserman. So, yep, totally agree. And, you know, he's made a number of very solid moves in the offseason. We've talked about this, you know, Grace and uh, a couple others in shoring up the defense, Mark Stahl. Um, so, It'll be interesting to see what next season brings for the Red Wings, for sure. But moving on to the other offseason, that would be the Pistons. Um, Troy Weaver's first as general manager. Um, 18th pick, I think. Um, and so what are you guys uh -huh. seeing? Uh -huh. Yeah, they'll have, they have the seventh and they're trying to trade up. Okay, okay. They have the number seven pick. Got it. Um, and Brandon, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the big news is, you know, there's an interest, I guess, by the Pistons to get LaMelo Ball, which I guess I kind of question why. And, and again, nothing to do with LaMelo Ball. Why do you want to put up with the family entourage? That, that, that to yeah. me is, um, I, I don't know why anyone would want to even bother at this point. So Yeah, I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree. I, I he may have some of the best, best overall skill set, um, but yeah, avoid at all. I actually wouldn't mind if they could down. Um, I don't think there are any surefire guys in the top ten. I think there's some very good players in the top ten, and who knows which ones will hit. But I actually wouldn't mind if they traded down, you know, and ended up with you know, one of the guards in the middle, you know, middle team rounds, you know, um, or, or even another wing, you know. So I just, if they could trade up to get a guy like James Wiseman, um, I might be on board with that. But, uh, and, and, and when I'm thinking about the Pistons too, is that, you know, when you say you're going to try to trade up, that typically in the NBA, that involves roster, uh, you know, players on your roster. And I, I think the other question really is, is that, are you know who who would be involved in a trade like that? That's what I'm you know, and it goes both ways. Who who is going to be involved in terms of someone that up there they would want from this roster, and who are you then going to go ahead and want to give up? And that that's yeah, I think you know, I think that there's two two choices that go in different directions based on um, the teams you're talking about that have those high picks. The first is Luke Kennard that would be the most likely scenario. Um, he would be a young guy with options um, that could shoot the ball, would be someone I could see. The other is Blake Griffin. Um, if Sacramento or Charlotte in particular, or even Chicago wanted to add him, I could see that. I think it's less likely 
But I think those would be the two trading pieces that would be involved in the new deal um, to move up. Not getting any audio from you, Adam. Yeah, I'm mute. No, yep. It was just dumbfounded by analysis. It was uh, uh, still hang on. Oh, I can't unmute. Can I? There you go. Now you should oh. be unmuted. Technical, technical. Um, Christian smooth Wood, as always. Oh wow! Again, it involves me. I can't be smooth. So, uh, I, Christian, I don't think there's a, a chance in the world they let go of him. Okay, so, so you think a serious bounty in return? Multiple okay. round picks. You know, move okay. it to, to you know the top four plus another first rounder um, because you know the price tag they're going to get him for with his skill set in the NBA right now he's a hot commodity. Uh, so. You know, unless, unless and, you know, they get a good enough deal, they should definitely, they should definitely move. Him. But I, I think they're going to be, they're going to hang on to him pretty tight. Okay, okay. And, and I mean, you you get the impression, I, I you know, Troy Weaver's just playing the game. I think part part of it's just that maybe the Lamelo Ball talk. I, I don't know exactly what would be the end game if he's playing a game in terms of wanting to go after him, but uh, um, I'm I'm. Again, it seems like I'm, I'm. I'm very curious at this point what a Troy Weaver is doing, uh, uh, and what he what his plans are for the offseason. My my intrigue is about as high with the Pistons as it's been in, in quite some time. So. Yeah, you know, if I to call the shot, I think it's most likely that they take Killian Hayes, Tyrese Halliburton, or, or Anthony Cole. I think that's that's likely what happens. That they don't actually they don't actually move up or down. They take one of those three guys and then they bring in another big man through agency. Um, and then they buy their time, wait for all that cap space to free up. And then, you know, depending on their record next year, you'll see a lot of activity, a lot of movement. So one last thing to touch on um, before we get out of here is the masters uh, and the one sport that has generally been unimpacted by uh, the nightmare that is 2020, as we've talked about on prior shows. Uh, what are you guys seeing in front of uh, that tournament? Uh, I think the the press and and the general overall fan base of golf have just basically defaulted, thinking that Bryson DeChambeau will bring Augusta down to his knees and he'll completely, you know, with his <laughs> 400 yard drives and whatever. And I I find that when you make assumptions about how things are going to go, especially in 2020, it's very very dangerous and overly assuming. Uh, on behalf of those putting those type of projections out to think that that is the reality of the situation. And, um, you know, when I'm looking at the Masters, one, I think uh, I'll be very curious about what, if any, impactor will be playing at Augusta in the fall, as there will be uh, in, in the uh, uh, spring, um, whether it be the uh, usual expected wind directions, uh, general overall conditions of the golf course, or just just basically – uh, you know, th just the strange timing of year uh, that will be taking place. But um, um, when I think about guys that are potentially going to win, uh, I think a guy, a guy like Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, John Rahm, uh, and Xander uh, Shaffley, uh, along with Patrick Cantlay. Th those are the guys off the top of my head. Uh, that and, and part of it really is quite, you know, in, in all honesty and admission that I'm I'm really wanting the Bryson DeChambeau train to be derailed uh, at some point. And I, with that swing, I, I, I don't think you can sustain that 
and I think that uh, you'll you'll get back to guys who are a little more classic, if you will, in terms of their ability and play, uh, and those are the ones that I've I've just referred to now. So, yeah, I mean, I do think there's you know Augusta's much harder for him. Um, we'll see. Yeah. And any other name? And he has not played too much golf here in the last two to three months, uh, and that's where I, I, I get a little concerned about his uh, overall ability, and actually just two names now that I'm talking. One, Tiger Woods. I'm not really sure. He Again, he has not played much golf, and I'm not really sure that he can necessarily repeat what he did last year, even though his knowledge of the golf course is second to none, probably as good as Jack Nicholas was uh, playing in, and his understanding and ability to analyze it. Uh, and the other one that I, I think you know, will be there. But again, the same thing applies. He's not played a whole lot of golf. And that's a Roy McIlroy, mm-hmm. uh, who, who should have been, uh, should have, you know, I, I, I questioned had 2020 been a quote unquote normal year, if Rory would have had a much better year, because he certainly was set up for it. So. With that said, time to, uh, pretty well wrap things up unless there's any uh, final thoughts that uh, you guys wanted to get into. None here other than um, we hope the, uh, the recording of this show, we had just learned about the uh, series of uh, COVID cases that got, um, uh, you know, diagnosed with the Oakland university uh, men's and women's basketball team. Mm, Uh, So hopefully, uh, the resolution of that is uh, very quick and that gets uh, remedied uh, very um, and, and of course there's nothing really bad that comes out of that so. yeah for sure <sighs> just continue to hold your breath we'll, uh, we'll be through 2020 hopefully fairly soon however 2021 was the year that Mad Max was supposed to be set in so something to look forward to yeah what's that I said something to look forward to exactly Exactly right. One other thing you can look forward to is listening to the Saturday Sports Emporium at whatever next point that we can uh, go ahead and get on the air. Um, I don't know when we're going to do this again. Uh, I assume they'll still be, you know, uh, dark COVID times, but uh, we'll be back on within the next few weeks, within a month or so to go over all the other fun stuff going on because we're, we're going to end up back in regular seasons again uh, hockey, basketball really before you know it um, and yeah, football too will of course still be going on so with that said for Brandon Lee and Adam Swenson, my name is Justin Lee and thank you for listening to another edition of the Saturday Morning Sports Symphony.